Last week in Mark chapter 4, we learned that there will be a range of responses to the message that Jesus will preach about God's kingdom. This week, from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5, we see Jesus' power at work in God's kingdom. And what He can do is overthrow a range of evil forces that opposes all that God is doing in the world. Now, these range of evil forces do share a common characteristic, and that is death. Because at the end of chapter 4, the disciples are facing a near-death experience. They're on the boat, and they're assaulted by a heavy storm, and as the waves are thrashing down upon them, Jesus stands up on the boat and speaks a word of peace and stills the storm and saves the disciples. And in the first chapter, in the first part of chapter 5, rather, there's a man that is tortured by demons. He's in a state of living death, and Jesus breaks his shackles and sets him free. Now in our verses this morning, Jesus is asked to deal with two kinds of death. The first, there's a 12-year-old daughter of a synagogue ruler and she is fast approaching death. And the second is a woman who is bleeding, and she is dying a slow death every day for the past 12 years. She suffers from an incurable uterine hemorrhage. And in both cases, just as He did before, Jesus will intervene with His saving power. But what we will see this morning is that as Jesus displays His saving power in relation to these deaths, He deals with two critically important issues as it relates to life. One is the question about social status, and the other is the problem of shame. Social status and the problem of shame. These are issues we all wrestle with And here, Jesus is going to address them as they relate to faith in Him. By social status, I'm taking this in a positive light, in the best possible light. It's the way we want to live, uh, the way that we want to live to be respected by others. It's the desire to have a good reputation, whether at school or at work. It's something that is worth keeping up with in terms of how we relate to people. So the question of social status is what Jesus is going to deal with as He approaches Jairus. That's the first thing we'll look at this morning. But then shame, on the other hand. Shame is the sense of defectiveness that we try to bury. If status is what we want other people to see, shame is what we want to keep from their sight. The more that shame rises within us, the less of a social standing we have with others, or at least that's how it feels. So the problem of shame is what Jesus would deal with in relation to the bleeding woman. That's what we'll look at second this morning. But what we're also going to see is that when Jesus addresses these issues, He shows us what kind of community the church ought to be, what kind of body we are to be of His in this world. 
So let's first look, let's look at the question of social status. Let's start by looking at Jairus. A recent poll question of nearly 20,000 people asked, what most defines you? And of the four options given, overwhelmingly most answered profession. Profession is what most defines them, more than gender, more than race or political party. Interestingly, religion was not one of those options. What we do tells us most about who we are, at least according to these 20,000 people, or one really anxious voter that kept on voting 20,000 times we don't know. And the, and the simplest explanation for why this would be for us is because in our culture, what a person does, a person's profession, is, more directly link, is most directly linked to their income level and to their social status. And here in the opening verses, we encounter a man, a well-known man in the community named Jairus. And Mark defines him by the way that most people want to be defined by in our society, by what he does. He's a ruler of the synagogue. Now, although he probably didn't get a paycheck from the synagogue, as one of the rulers of the synagogues, he had a lot of responsibilities. He funded the synagogue's activities. He had to make sure that the building was in good enough shape. He had to make sure that the scrolls were good enough to be used in worship. He had to use his means to provide the religious life, to provide for the religious life of the community. So to be in his role, he didn't just have to be successful, successful financially, but also socially. He had to use his wealth for the good of community. And if so, you can see why he was a well-liked person. But as much social and financial capital he had, none of that was enough to keep him from bankrupting him of the most precious thing in his life, and that was the life of his daughter the life of his little girl. Every parent's worst nightmare became his reality. A couple years ago, I just, I remember when one of the girls didn't, I couldn't find one of the girls when we were playing in the park, and I just remember in that time, those minutes that felt like hours and and the panic of feeling of missing one of my little girl's And then I started to realize if I came home and said to Jessica, two out of three ain't bad, that wasn't going to cut it for her. So I can't imagine what this man must have been going through in his experience. Now the last time Jesus was seen at a synagogue in Mark, the officials were out to arrest him. But Jairus didn't get the memo, either that or he didn't care because he was so desperate. He seeks an audience with Jesus, the teacher, and the miracle worker, so he pushes his way through the crowd, he falls to his knees begging, and like the leper in chapter 1, he pleads for his life, pleads for his daughter's life, rather, before Jesus. You see, when you are desperate, dignity takes a back seat. This man of great social standing, a ruler of the synagogue, gives up his standing and crumbles before Jesus and says, Jesus, you have to fix this. You're the only hope that I have. His daughter's life is hanging by a thread, and in a very real sense, his life is too because that's what any parent would feel like in that situation. 
all the means and all the influence that Jairus had, the things that we would want most our life to be defined by were powerless to free him from the grip of death for his daughter. Couldn't answer any prayers. If you haven't had this experience yet, there will come a time when the number of commas dotting your bank account line or positions that you have held or awards that you have won will simply be no match for the hardships of this shattered and sinful life. Won't be enough. The actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I wish that everyone could get rich and be famous and have everything so that they could know that that's just not the answer to life. And so often the case, it's the ground-shaking experiences of life that wake us up to that reality. So drop down to his knees. Jairus actually stands to teach us an important lesson about faith. And that's no matter how high our social status, the need for Jesus' saving power remains. No matter who we are, we all have some sort of social standing, whether it's within a large network of people or just within our own family. As important as that standing is, there is nothing as vital to your life as your standing with Jesus Christ. Because He alone has the power to bring life in ways that no social status ever could. Jairus and his daughter's life is hanging by a thread, but by coming to faith in Jesus, by coming to Him in this position, he's actually in the best position he's ever had. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, better to be dead at the feet of Jesus than alive anywhere else. Do you believe that this morning? Have you come to the realization like Jairus that no matter how high your social status, when life brings you down and death is knocking at your door, you need something greater than you could muster. You need what Jairus needed, and that's the saving power of Christ. Now look at what Jesus does when we come to him in this way by faith. Jesus responds to this concerned man with amazing compassion. He goes right along with him just goes right with him, no questions asked. Now, as dire as Jairus' situation was, and as radical as his faith is, Jesus encounters another person who is facing her own death and shows us just how radical faith can get. You see, in the same year that Jairus' daughter was born, no doubt a joyful and happy time for his family, an unnamed woman in the town started hemorrhaging from her uterus. This was the beginning of the end of her life. She did what anybody would do in that situation. She saw all the doctors she could afford, and their treatments just left her broke and more broken. The condition just got worse. Now, as if the medical prognosis wasn't bad enough, according to Old Testament law, her perpetual bleeding left her in a state of being ceremonially unclean. 
And because of her condition, she could probably never marry. She couldn't attend synagogue. She couldn't be part of any feast or celebrations. She couldn't even hug anybody because she would defile them. And unlike the synagogue ruler, you wouldn't want to be in her company. Just think about that. No family, no participation in religious worship, no community that she could be a part of, not even friendly human touch. There's a Russian proverb that says, shame is worse than death. And in the case of the woman, you could see why that would be true. Because for the past 4,380 days of her life, she had to come to grips with the fact that the only contribution that she would make to her community is how she made it unclean. Now, as we heard in Leviticus, other women could be deemed ceremonially clean again. They could participate in worship. There was a sacrifice that they could make to be welcomed back. But for her, the only part of the Levitical law that applied to her was the line that said this, so long as she continues to have a discharge of blood, she remains impure. The Levitical laws were limited. They couldn't help her. The doctors had all her money, but they had no treatment for her, and the community shamed her. The only recourse she had was the same recourse that the ruler had in his status, and that is she had to find Jesus. But unlike the ruler, in her unclean state, she wouldn't approach Jesus face to face, but from the back. And she wouldn't dare call out his name. Instead, what she would do is whisper a prayer. If I just touch his garments, I will be made well. Her life was hanging by a thread. And all she could do was just pray. It wasn't much. But when she prayed... And her hand reached out to the thread of Jesus' garment. She received more help in that moment than she did in 12 years of seeing doctors. Mark puts it this way, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Until that moment with Jesus, until this time with Jesus, What do you think she felt in relation to her body? Shame. Shame. Shame is that great inward sense that we are broken somehow. And we can experience it when we've sinned or when we are sinned against. So for example, when we use cutting words against another person, that can make us feel shame. Or when we are on the receiving end of those cutting words, that can cause us to feel shame. Even if we know that we have been forgiven for what we've done, 
that sense of defectiveness stays on us and with us. So shame can weigh on us whether we sin or sin against, but beyond that, we can simply experience shame because we live in broken bodies and in a broken world. And Jesus offers the remedy for all occasions for our shame because He can save us from our sin and heal our bodies no matter how extensive the damage. Look at what He does for this woman. In the most personal area of her body, in the most private aspect of her life, Jesus Christ heals her shame. Do you know what it's like to carry shame with you like this. Maybe your body doesn't work the way that it used to because of an accident or medical condition or because of aging. Your quality of life has never been the same. Or maybe you were born with a condition and your body and brain has never done what you hoped it would do. And you think just how different life could be You have an intellectual disability that really keeps you back at school, a speech impediment that makes you not want to state your mind. Your hearing isn't what it used to be, so you find yourself removing yourself from company. These are all the ways that shame can collect on our bodies. But sometimes the things that make us feel the worst shame They don't have a medical diagnosis, and there is no treatment protocol. The shame that comes from family rejection or past relationships, the experience of divorce or remarriage, the shame that comes from joblessness or failing at a degree, the shame that comes when others don't talk with you at school. Some of the heaviest shames we carry are not detectable to the doctor. They can even remain hidden from our friends. And whatever way shame has hit you most personally, whatever you experience in your body or just deep in your heart, Jesus Christ's great desire is to heal you, is to remove that shame from you, And it's important that you see this. Look at what happens after the woman's body is healed. Just Jesus asks the question, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples think, that's a stupid question because all they see is the crowd. They don't see the suffering individual in their midst. And that's the person Jesus is most interested in. The person who is suffering most in their midst. He isn't asking the question for information. He's asking the question because he wants to complete the transformation beyond fixing her body. So as Jesus is looking around The woman falls before his face now. 
and tells him the whole story. And she does so. Why? Well, she does so to let him know just how much he's gone through. And Mark gives us an interesting detail. She does so with fear and trembling. Why is she afraid? Why would she be afraid? Because from a psychological view, when a person is so used to living in shame and they finally receive grace, it feels like they've done something terribly wrong. They're not used to the feeling of something good. Or perhaps from a theological view, she was afraid because she had broken Levitical law and would have tainted Jesus, this great teacher and healer. She would have made him defective. And if there is one thing you take away from this morning's sermon, let it be this. You can't make Jesus unclean with your defectiveness but He will make you clean by His holiness. Look at how He restores the dignity of this woman. In the midst of this large crowd, Jesus says to her, daughter, when do you think the last time was that somebody said that to her? Or spoke to her so kindly? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. As deeply personal as her affliction was, Jesus healed it. Jesus doesn't try to reason with her shame. He doesn't say there's there's nothing to be ashamed of. No, because shame doesn't respond to reason, does it? He doesn't try to just simply give her coping tools with her shame, as important and as good as they might be. No, He removes her shame. And in order to do that, for as public as her shame was, so so must her acceptance must be. And He claims her to be part of His family. She's a daughter of the king. And her faith, which could never be practiced in community with others, now is the model of faith for the church. Because if Jesus could do that for her, He can do that for all of us. That's why Mark gives us this story right in the middle of the story of Jairus' daughter being healed. He wants us to see it's right front and center so we don't miss it. We must come to see that when Jesus Christ died for our sin, He also was crucified for the shame of our sin. There is a sacrifice He can offer for our shame that we can't, and it's His very life that He can give. He can not only heal our bodies, He could restore our social standing, He can make us part of His family, He can remove our shame. And there is no shame that you carry in your body 
and in your soul that won't be redeemed by Jesus when we place our trust in Him just like this woman found. If this is true about the experience of sitting before the feet of Jesus, then what must the experience be like for those who come in contact with Jesus' body, the church? What must their experience be like? Some years ago when I was working at a public clinic, there was a young adult man that started coming to our groups. And like many, when he first started coming to the group, he projected a very tough exterior. But he was shy and he was quiet. And all throughout the year, he wore a black hooded sweatshirt that always covered his arms. The city gets very hot, yet he always wore his black hoodies. And in those hot rooms with limited air conditioning, everyone else was wearing short sleeves except for him. Day after day in the hot summer, he wore this. Then finally, at the end of the summer, sometime around August, he finally wore short sleeves. And when he did, you could see all the marks and scars from his drug use over the years. And one of his group members asked him, what, what made it so that you were able to wear short sleeves here? And he said, this is the kind of group that I now know I can show my scars to and not be judged. He had many scars, but he was experiencing deep healing in his life. The missiologist Leslie Newmigan puts it this way about the church. He says, the church as the body of Christ is intended to be a healing society. Just as the woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment in the midst of the jostling crowd received immediate healing, so should it be that all who touch the Christian congregation in the midst of the busy life of the world should find healing. That when others come in, into our midst, no matter who we are, that we would really resemble a hospital where we each come to receive healing from the great physician, Jesus Christ. You see, no matter what our official role or unofficial role is here, each of us have a responsibility to offer the healing of Jesus Christ to one another in our groups, in our events, and in our ministries. We play a part in other people's healing as much as we need to be healed. Paul puts it best in Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, in this process, I think what is most difficult for us personally is learning to wait for Christ's timing of our transformation. When we are broken, we want Jesus Christ to fix it now. It can never be too soon. 
But here now we learn that part of the life of faith is also waiting for Jesus' timing, and that's what the last piece of the story teaches us. Because when Jairus enters the scene again, no sooner than Jesus heals the woman, there's talk that the little girl has died. There are rumblings all around Jairus. People ask, why trouble Jesus any longer? The girl is dead. And this is the most critical moment in Jairus' faith. Does he accept the report that dead is dead or that Jesus has more to do for him? And Jesus, seeing this battle, and Jairus goes up to him and says, Do not fear, only believe. In faith, we are to come to Jesus, whatever our standing, but we also must believe that with Jesus, there is always more, and it is always better. As the children sang this morning, have you heard about Jesus? Because the best part of the story, the most incredible miracle, is still on its way. And Jesus can heal the body. He can remove our shame, but He can also raise the dead to life. So with Peter and James and John, He goes to Jairus' house, and as He enters, there are professional mourners there, people paid to play songs and to wail, and they laugh at Jesus because He said that she was sleeping. Now that's not because she wasn't really dead. She was dead. Jesus said that because when you're the Lord of life and people are dead, it's as if they're napping to you. Does not have the same effect for Jesus as it does for everybody else. But the mourners laugh at him. But they don't have long to laugh because he quickly puts them out of work. He has another daughter to claim for his family, and he says to this little girl, little girl, I say to you, arise. And just as quickly as the woman was healed, this little girl receives her life back. Look at how beautiful the story turns out, because Jesus does things according to his timing. There are many things we want Jesus to do now there will be so, that will be so much better if we just simply learn to wait for His own timing. You know, in the Gospels, the disciples are always trying to get Jesus to do things according to their timing and according to their way, but for their sake, Jesus had to do it His way. They didn't want Him to take up the cross. They did not know that He had to die so that He could remove our sins from us. He, can, he had to bury their shame in His tomb forever, once and for all, so that He could rise again and give us a share in His resurrection life. Thank God Jesus did it in His way and in His own time. There is no better outcome than that when we learn that in the life of faith. We know that Jesus has already defeated death forever. 
And that right now we can have new life in Him, even as we wait to be with Him in heaven and are given new bodies. But we have to also come to see that His timing is absolutely perfect, even when it feels like our life is hanging by a thread. So long as Jesus is on the other end of that thread, there's always reason to have hope. The healing will come in our bodies, in our souls, with Jesus. The best is still to come because of Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love to take not just our sin away, but our shame. The things that we carry in our bodies and all the ways that we are broken, even ways that some are not even maybe able to articulate, yet we know that your healing will come. Thank you for these stories that strengthen our faith and show us not only our need, but your sufficiency. Pray these things in your name. Amen.